Hello and welcome. May the 4th be with you and also with you. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Next hour, the third hour of the program, Josh Clark will be with me for the whole hour. He is running for the United States Senate in Georgia. All of the U.S. Senate candidates in Georgia have been invited. Thus far, all have accepted except Herschel Walker. I'm hoping he will accept. That's the one everybody's interested in. Um, I mean, the, the reality is all of the public polling has him well outside runoff territory over 50%. Uh, but there are a number of candidates running, and I've invited them all to come on and talk. Uh, they've got uh, 20 days until the primary to convince people. And I will give them all an hour to make their case, um, uh, introduce themselves. These are probative. They're not really tough questions. It's kind of who are you and, and what are your issues sort of things. He'll Josh Clark will join me for the full hour next hour. Uh, I, I want to go off the beaten path, if you'll allow it. I'm tired of talking about abortion. There's really nothing more to say. The opinion hasn't even come out. Uh, so now that we've talked about abortion, let's talk about religion. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, we're going to talk about gun control instead. <laughs> um, no, I want to talk about cocaine. I, I'm not actually making that up. I'm, I'm serious. I want to talk about cocaine. <laughs> Got your interest now, don't I? No, 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 no. Uh, so this is really off the beaten path, except it's not. I I have been staying these last few days at a, a very, very nice hotel. And on Monday, I'm a thousand percent sure I saw uh, someone buying cocaine there. They definitely were snorting something into their nose thereafter. And uh, then uh, while I was at uh, the breakfast table this morning, as a matter of fact, uh, two people in the hotel were talking about their college days and the amount of drugs they used and, and cocaine came up and, and inevitably it's all a bunch of white bankers. And one, I, I'm I'm really, first of all, uh, walking down uh, the main street in Atlanta's Peachtree Street uh, runs from downtown Atlanta all the way up to the Buckhead area. Uh, lots of big businesses on Peachtree Road, Peachtree Street. Um, it was Peachtree Street becomes Peachtree Road. And in the little neighborhoods by the hotel, out for a walk, I'm trying to do my 30 minutes of walking a day, the amount of marijuana smell in these well-to-do apartments I was sitting in the back of the hotel that I'm at. There's a nice garden area, and you can see the residents of the apartment buildings uh, smoking weed on their balconies. You can smell it in the air everywhere. Uh, you got the, the guy at the hotel snorting cocaine, talking about it at, at the breakfast table this morning, and it's a well-to-do area. And this this raises my spidey sense on a fundamental cultural problem we have in the country. And it actually is related to the freak out over the Dobbs case, but so much more. John Edwards is that a Democrat from North Carolina in the Senate who ran for president, wound up dropping out, getting in trouble, losing his bar license, I think, for a time. Uh, I think he avoided jail, but essentially he... He had a wife, uh, Elizabeth Edwards, who was beloved by progressives. She was 
to the left of her husband. Um, I will not speak ill of the dead. She died several years ago from cancer. Uh, he had an affair with a woman, uh, Riley, somebody, I think, and then was using a campaign donor to pay her off and give her money uh, to avoid having to report it. And, but John Edwards, when he was running for president and in the Senate, talked about two Americas. There are two Americas. And it was it was the way he was talking about it was kind of kind of ripe for mockery, but there are two Americas. And I, I, I the brazenness of rich people and their lifestyles these days, cocaine has made a comeback among the rich, well-to-do young in this country. It, it has absolutely made a comeback. I, and I'm I'm shocked. Uh, and I, so I, I will I'll, I'll fill you all in now on last Monday when I was abruptly not here. I got sick. Uh, it was spur of the moment. I got really sick. And it caused uh, whatever it was, viral or whatnot, caused my blood pressure to just skyrocket. And I had to go uh, to the emergency room, which is why I was not here for those three hours. And my blood pressure just skyrocketed as a result of being whatever it was that got me sick. And they had to, it went down by itself. Uh, they didn't have to give me medicine, but they gave me all of this literature. And on every single page talking about causes of high blood pressure, cocaine usage was in on every page. It's like, how common is it that uh, people are using? Apparently, it's very common. It's very bad, by the way, it's very addictive. It eventually can cause you to to stroke out, have a heart attack, die if you use too much of it. Uh, a lot of uh, professionals who used Ritalin or, or Adderall in college switched to cocaine in their professional life. It's readily available among a set of, of well-to-do people, mostly white people. There are multiple fascinated facets of this, including the fact that rich people tend to be able to live lifestyles and make life choices that poor people cannot because they can't afford and it'll have devastating effects on them. A rich person who gets addicted to cocaine can probably have an insurance policy that covers rehab, and the poor person does not. A rich person, because of their lifestyle and life choices and, and skill sets and job, will use it in limited um, situations, even if they develop a habit and an addiction, and a poor person will come undone by the addiction. And most important of all, a rich person can buy it and use it openly in a hotel setting and get away with it. Poor person's going to go to jail. It's the issue with marijuana. I had a friend who smoked a lot of weed uh, with the encouragement, no less, of his therapist because of anxiety and a um, pill addiction in his family, and he was scared of, of getting addicted to anything, and, and his therapist encouraged him to to smoke weed. That's what he did uh, when he had anxiety, which I've always heard that if you smoke, it makes you paranoid, um, but that's that's what he did to calm himself, and I, I was kind of shocked by his openness about it, and he looked at me one day and said, I can get away with this because I am upper income and white. 
And that was really one of the first moments I thought about this. And then uh, having had that conversation with him, I was in Washington a while back while the Weekly Standard was still around. Charlie and I were there, and I was having lunch with Steve Hayes and Jonathan Last, then at the Weekly Standard, and, and the issue of uh, legalization of marijuana came up in the conversation. And, and Jonathan Last, uh, very much against legalization, but pointed out uh, how infuriating it is to him, how open a white person can be with drug usage in this country if they're upper income, and a poor person, particularly a poor black person, cannot be. A, a poor black person will go to jail And this does, to a degree, encroach on this issue of abortion. A rich, particularly a rich white person, can live a promiscuous lifestyle of the rich and famous, sleep around and have abortions, or if they're a man, pay for the abortions or the child support and have a collapsed uh, love life, uh, a, a repeat divorce marriage rate. Kids by lots of different women or kids by lots of different husbands and can sustain themselves and comfort themselves surrounded by luxury in a way when poor people embrace that lifestyle that it's not going to work for them. It's a societal collapse. And one of the worst things we have in this country in, I think, is a lot of rich people in positions of power and influence over culture, advocating lifestyles that they can afford to have that when someone who's not in their lifestyle and their income metric have, it destroys their lives. I'm telling you, one of the biggest issues that that has pushed me towards some degree of, of uh, open acceptance, legalization of, of marijuana usage is largely because of that power imbalance, because I see it all the time. Walk in the streets of Buckhead. The police aren't enforcing it. People are on their balcony smoking weed. You can smell it. You can see it. They're disproportionately white in high rises, uh, paying a lot of money, and the poor black guy on the street is going to go to jail if he does it. And ironically, the rich white people are they're either flying it in from a state where it's legal or they're buying it from a poor black person, more likely than not, who is going to go to jail for subsidizing the habits of the rich white person. This is not a sign of a healthy society. The brazenness and openness of these things in society is, is actually a, a sign of, of poor health of society. Uh, believe it or not, it was not a bad thing that 20, 30, 40 years ago, there were certain behaviors people kept behind closed doors because they were not necessarily behaviors that were good for a stable society. And when people became open and brazen about them, it helped deteriorate society. Drug use and addiction, uh, the, the the commonality of it, the use of it in college. Uh, frankly, I was I was following along. Um, Mark Andreessen, the the venture capitalist, the other day was saying everybody blames social media and the access to the internet for all the problems we have in society. But you actually, if you pinpoint it, it, all those things started happening with the invention of the internet that coincided with the easy release of Adderall. And addictions to Adderall in society and the changing behaviors that that Adderall addiction had. And I got to tell you, there's a commonality of people who do uh, hard illegal drugs as adults who did Adderall and Ritalin as kids for ADHD. 
Now, listen, I, I'm I've actually our child, our son. I I told you guys a couple of weeks ago we went to a. Uh, child behavioral specialist because our teacher, our kids' teachers have kept saying, you need to have him tested for ADHD. We didn't want to go the, the medication route. We wanted to find a uh, behavioral specialist who could see if he had it, diagnose him accurately, uh, and work on occupational therapy as opposed to uh, drugs. And uh, so we found someone who uh, is very much a drugs are the last resort. You've got to go with occupational behavioral therapy. And uh, we wound up, she decided that our son probably needs some level of medication to begin with because he's kind of, he's he's with memory one way, with focus another way. It, it, it's kind of wonky based on her experience. And she said it, it's a, a non-habit forming uh, drug just to use to introduce him as he's beginning the occupational uh, behavioral therapy to learn better habits of scheduling, to learn better habits of planning, to learn better habits of studying and stuff like that and, and wean him off once he gets into that situation, but just help him get started. And I was glad to have someone who was not so zealous about these drugs because, you know, on Instagram now, and, and my gosh, the number of friends of mine who tell me I need to be on Adderall, um, I, I go online now, I get on Instagram and there are all sorts of New groups out there that will telemedicine diagnose you and prescribe Adderall. And there's a story in the Wall Street Journal today. Walmart, Walgreens, and CVS are no longer honoring prescriptions from these online companies. Because very much like the opioid crisis of the 90s and 2000s, uh, there are a lot of doctors who have taken the easy way out. They're just giving people Adderall. And many of the people who are on the Adderall, they just want it. And it's addictive. It changes their behavior, and in the internet is making it more and more common. We are playing with fire as a society on the issue of uh, addiction, drugs, alcohol, COVID has made it all worse. And the worst, worst part of it is, is that the the leaders of trends and culture are the rich people who have the money to pad their landing when they finally crash. But they are influencing a whole lot of people who don't have the money and the means to pad their landing when they crash. And we're looking at something far worse coming in society if we don't get a handle on it. And that goes to the the, the whole issue, again, of Roe v. Wade and Dobbs is a promiscuous lifestyle as a rich person who can afford abortions is very different from the promiscuous lifestyle of the people who aren't rich, who can't afford it, but who adopt it because that's what the rich trend leaders of the country do. The cocaine lifestyle will kill you. And yet it's becoming popularized again by pop culture and rich people. And I don't know that we as a nation fully understand what's happening with now the easy access to this stuff uh, among rich people in society and what it's going to do to the rest of society as the house of cards comes falling down on us. I got to play you this audio. Senator Rand Paul on the floor of the United States Senate. Reserving the right to object. We learned last week that the department of Homeland security has established a ministry of truth. They're calling it the disinformation governance board. How Orwellian. Now the details are scarce of this effort, but one would assume that the DHS intelligence and analysis would be part of that effort. The nominee being considered today was one of the architects of George W. Bush's administration, bulk metadata collection at the NSA. What a great uh, 
recommendation for him, sarcasm included, which gathered the private electronic communications of millions of Americans without warrant. Is this someone we would want to be involved in Biden administration's new ministry of truth? I will not provide my consent to expanding the surveillance state and the suppression of First and Fourth Amendment rights of Americans. I oppose this nominee and object. And as a result, uh, the nominee is not advancing at the moment. I uh, talked to a reporter. You know, this is that uh, Dina Jankowitz woman who has the erotic fan fiction songs about wanting to sleep with Harry Potter. (laughs) Y'all, I'm not making that up. We're not going to play the audio. Um, A a, a reporter said uh, this, this person really is nuts and unserious. And it was speculated that maybe one of her parents was a big Democratic donor. That just seems like, I mean, how else do you find this person for this role? My gosh, um, what an embarrassment. And uh, Rand Paul intends to scuttle it, so God bless him. Uh, when we come back, Lila Rose is going to join me from live action. Confession. You know, I still have my law license. And every month when I get the bar journal, the very first thing I do is go to the back and see if anybody I know got disbarred. <laughs> I just just had to do it. I'm sure the rest of you do, too. Nobody I know has gotten disbarred this month. Now, joining me by phone is the head of Live Action, one of the great pro-life groups in the country, uh, one of the preeminent pro-life activists in the country, Lila Rose, joining me by phone. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing? Eric? I am great. Okay, so I gotta just before we actually get into what I really want to talk about, I gotta ask you your reaction thus far. The Supreme Court saying that was a draft. I mean, what you thinking? I'm thinking that it's looking good, Eric. I think that the draft was a tremendous step in the right direction. I mean, if that's where they're going to land in their ruling, it means that at minimum. The, the, the blue states or the, the sorry the red states of our country can protect preborn children and we just got to work on turning those blue states into pro-life states to protect the children there too amen yeah so now let's talk about that because I, I have said for a while that if this day came the real hard work would actually begin uh, fostering a culture of life at the state level on a state-by-state basis. And, I mean, how do you see the lay of the landscape moving forward if uh, uh, the abortion right is moved back to state legislatures? So it's a big step forward, and that's because, you know, Roe v. Wade essentially put a chokehold on um, not just states' rights. And I I say that um, with some hesitation because, listen, states don't have, shouldn't have the right to decide whether children live or die. That's a human right that's inalienable, that's universal. So this whole idea of sending abortion to the states to decide is really um, halfway to justice. It's, it's a compromise, you could say, of course, with the pro-abortion side to say, oh, if you're in California, you get to keep your abortion. Um, you know, that kind of, if you compare it to slavery, you look back at, you know, half the country is uh, permitting slaves and half of it isn't. That's not justice, right? But it's better than what we have now because what we have now, because of Roe v. Wade, is even if you're a pro-life state, you're not allowed to protect children in your state. And that's why they we're even having this Supreme Court decision because, you know, Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban was challenged and it went to the Supreme Court. It eventually, you know, landed at the Supreme Court in Dobbs v. Jackson. So it's, our work has just begun as a pro-life movement uh, once, the, once states have the right to, their, their right to protect children is now uh, affirmed. 
because now we have to go in and make sure that the states that are pro-life have the right pro-life laws on the books. And I'm talking about complete legal protection because even this 15-week abortion ban in Mississippi, that means a 14-week-old child with a beating heart, fully formed, a tiny face, eyelashes, everything, fingernails, that child can be dismembered legally and that's called choice in Mississippi, right? Mm-hmm. Even even if this, um, even if the Supreme Court upholds their 15-week abortion ban, the 14-week-old baby is up for killing. And that's not okay. That's not justice. Uh, that's a violation of that child's rights. So there's a lot of work to do, but I'm enthusiastic because I see that when people learn, they change. When people learn facts about human development, when they learn about the brutality of the abortion procedure, when they learn about the logical case for life, that it's a human life in the womb, science is clear, human rights are universal and inalienable, that means we all have them, you can't take them from them. Uh, from from a human, if they're born and unborn, no matter their age, their location, you know, their ethnicity, it doesn't matter. You're human, that's enough. And once people realize all humans should have human rights and the child has the right to life, people change. People become pro-life. We see it all the time at live action. So I'm enthusiastic that, you know, the more educational work we do, the more we're in the state legislatures, you know, raising the roof, getting pro-life legislation passed, and then, you know, focusing on these deep blue states that are just really crazy uh, you know, they really, uh, they, they've lost their marbles. I mean, listen, Gavin Newsom, I was listening to his press conference this morning um, in Sacramento. You know, my governor, here I am in, in California, born and raised. Gavin Newsom is out there complaining about the, you know, the companies fleeing my state because companies don't want to be in California to uh, deal with the rising taxes and home co- cost of homes and the homelessness and the crime. You know, they go to Texas, right? They're going to Florida. And he's saying, oh, why are you leaving for red states businesses? We have abortion here. You know, <laughs> that's our claim to fame now at California. Forget our gorgeous beaches and our you know, amazing uh, communities. We have abortion here. I mean, it's, it's disgusting. Most people don't really buy that. Even, even liberals, even people on the left, they're like, I don't want to be known for my abortion. You know, that's not, uh, that's not something to celebrate. So I think we're going to see some tectonic shifts happen, um, not just in red states, but in blue states. Uh, if you're just joining, I'm talking to, to Lila Rose of, of Live Action. Now, one of the things that I also want to talk to you about is the number of, of what the left uh, particularly likes to, to label crisis pregnancy centers, uh, the, the, the pro-life pregnancy centers for pregnant moms to surround them with a network of people and support who can help them get through this pregnancy. I, I, I've, I've seen the numbers, and I think I read yesterday there's like a six-to-one ratio – of uh, pregnancy centers that don't do abortion uh, outnumber uh, abortion clinics in the country. There is this mythology perpetuated in the media that pro-lifers really don't care about the child once the child is born, and yet here are all these institutions that really do build the safety net. But what more of the safety net? What thought have you put into this as far as the safety net for pregnant moms and, and after they've had their child? Yeah, I, I mean, most of the work of the pro-life movement, which doesn't make the headlines, which, you know, no one, it's not like media groups are standing on the sidelines cheering you on. And, you know, the Hollywood elite is not, uh, you know, going to volunteer to help single moms that pregnancy centers, you know, support daily, day in and day out. Most of the work of the pro-life movement is supporting young families. It's supporting single moms. It's supporting children. Uh, it's making sure that there's adoption available. There's that foster care kids are getting better care. It's providing for that woman in the crisis pregnancy so that she doesn't feel she has to kill her child 
to survive. And that's that's most of our work in the pro-life movement. We have thousands of pregnancy resource centers. They're not just helping women before the birth of their children. They're helping women with very young children, with material resources, with free counseling, connecting them with job opportunities. I mean, that is most of our work of the pro-life movement. That's what we're really proud that we get to do is actually serve families who who are in need. And listen, you know, part of Live Action's platform, it's anti-abortion. We want to abolish abortion, make it unthinkable. But we also want more child tax credits. We also want to make sure that businesses are encouraged to provide more family leave. I mean, there's a lot to do here in terms of more pro-family policies. And I think the GOP is making some progress there. You know, the tax credit is a big push of um, Senator Howley and, you know, Romney has been pushing that at times. But I think that, you know, the left right now is focused on abortion. Kill your children. Uh, we should be focused on, no, let's help you raise your children, right? right? Let's help you choose life. And that should be our focus both politically and our focus with our NGOs, with our nonprofits, in our communities, with our businesses, just how we serve our neighbors wherever we are in whatever state we're in. Okay. Now, I'm going to apologize in advance because I want to, before I wrap this up, ask you a question. And, and normally, you learn in law school, never ask a question you don't know the answer to, or at least know that you've, you, you're heading somewhere. So I don't want to catch you blind on this. So I apologize in advance if I am. But one of the issues that I really feel strongly about here uh, in this culture of life issue is uh, the government seems to have gone out of its way in the last decade to make adoption as convoluted and costly as absolutely possible. Uh, and I, I didn't know if you had any, I assume you do, but but wasn't sure if you had any thoughts on that. Sure. So I can definitely speak to that. Here, here's the thing. Adoption is costly, and and you know there's a there's a good argument for it being costly because children should not you know we 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 need to be careful with adoption you know we need to be very careful with the vetting process of who's adopting how adoption is happening but the the reason that abortion is happening or the reason that children are not being adopted is not because of abortion being costly it's because there aren't children to adopt the children are being aborted instead. And there's also this very negative societal attitude towards adoption, especially among a lot of, um, you know, pro-abortion groups are pushing that, you know, you don't want to do adoption. That's not what you want. So I think that we need to just understand what's actually going on underneath, you know, peel back the layers of the onion. Adoption is expensive, but what's really the issue at hand, you have, you have really millions of people in line for adoption. They estimate 2 million families waiting to adopt. There's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of them on different registries, you know, in line to try to adopt. It's that there are not enough children available to be adopted. And the abortion rate daily is 2,363 children on average killed every day. Over 2,000 children killed every single day. So there are families willing to adopt. It's really about changing our attitude as a country about adoption. And it's also about empowering families and mothers to keep their children. You know, I'm very pro-adoption. But I'm also pro-parenting, and I think if you're, you know, a mother, if you're a father, you should be empowered to parent your own child, your own biological p- child, if possible. Obviously, if there's going to be risk to your child, uh, someone who is equipped should parent them. But at the end of the day, we should be empowering parents. Uh, that should be the focus of our movement. That's well said, uh, and that gives me more food for thought as well to think on. Thank you very much for stopping by with this. I, I, again, I, this is such a historic moment. Obviously, the real decision hasn't come out. I know you have worked tirelessly in, in the field, and thank you for all your work. And really, the work now really begins, and, and I'm glad you'll be a part of it. Thank you. We're, we're just getting started.
Thanks so much, Eric. Absolutely. Lila Rose, uh, live action, uh, one of the great pro-life groups in the country. Really, a word of caution here, though. There are a lot of groups that have worked on this issue for a lot of years. Some of them will need to go away. Not live action, by the way. Uh, that they really uh, will need to stick around given what they do. But there are some groups out there that are going to need to go away. And I don't know that groups with fundraising bases will do that. It's one of the problems the conservative movement as a whole has right now is uh, you got a lot of groups that have been around for so long. They've got a donor base and they really don't have a cause anymore, but they've got a donor base. And so they just keep people agitated by fear to fundraise. And I would hate to see the pro-life movement descend into what parts of the conservative movement have done where you've won. You, you got Roe repealed. You got Roe overruled by the Supreme Court. Give it up now. Give the money back to the donors and close up shop. There will be an evolution in the fight, an evolution in the movement. And I don't know that some of these groups are, will be equipped for that fight. Uh, live action it absolutely will. And uh, Susan B. Anthony uh, will. Uh, there are some great groups out there that will. But uh, does National Right to Life need to, to reconsider the policies it adv- advocates for over time? There are, frankly, a lot of pro-lifers who think National Right to Life, that the major national coordinating body for a lot of pro-life groups is pretty squishy. Um, it's it not as aggressive as it could be. Um, I, I have in the past accused them of the same. It's going to be interesting to see the policy positions. And by the way, I think you'll find there's going to wind up being a split between the very small government libertarianish Republicans and and others because of the social safety net issues with mothers and children. The, the public policy world changes. But the bigger picture, this is the way it was supposed to be. Roe v. Wade took from the states an issue and made one size fits all for everyone and preempted uh, the evolution of public opinion on a hotly contested issue. The Supreme Court had no business doing that. The founders intended us to use a federal structure where each state was a semi-sovereign entity giving limited enumerated powers to Washington. And we should maintain that. We should perpetuate that. We should continue that process. Uh, and um, move forward in that way. Federalism works, and frankly, we should be more and more mindful that America, a nation of 330 million people spread out over the fourth largest um, geopolitical landmass on planet Earth, divided into 50 states and thousands of counties, each with different constitutions, different rules of law, We are too big and diverse and heterogeneous for one size fits all from Washington on all of these issues. Led the laboratories of democracy sort this out for themselves as the people in those states decide. I actually – I would support a nationwide law prohibiting abortion, but really – my preference is let the 50 states decide it. We shouldn't have uh, a one-size-fits-all no abortion, one-size-fits-all all abortion. We got 50 states of different peoples, different cultures, different philosophies, different politics. Let the states decide and, and move to the one that best fits your worldview. You're allowed to. We should do that. One of the companies that's advancing the pro-life movement, putting real money into the pro-life cause to help advance the movement, is Patriot Mobile. 
And the way they do that is they get you as a customer, and then they generate profits, and then their profits go to the conservative movement, to the pro-life cause, the Second Amendment cause, veterans and first responders, and you get great service. You're not going with a company that uses inferior 5G data voice. You're using a company that uses the same cell towers everybody else does. So you're going to get great service. You're going to get great quality with Patriot Mobile. Uh, and you get free activation with my name. If you go to patriotmobile.com slash Eric, patriotmobile.com slash E-R-I-C-K, you get free activation. You can call them 972-PATRIOT if you like. 972-PATRIOT, you will get um, a free activation with my name, and you're dealing with 100% U.S.-based customer service there. Give them a try. Uh, go talk to them. See if they're a good fit for you. I will tell you, I like their service a ton. I have an AT&T phone. I also have a Patriot mobile phone uh, that I set up. I, I even use my free activation scan. I didn't tell them it was me going in. I wanted to see the service for myself, and it works. Uh, it, it works very well, and I've got uh, two cell phones, and uh, they use different tower systems. So where one doesn't work, the other one always does. And I don't have to worry about missed calls, and, and it's nice to actually have a different phone number now to give to some people instead of the primary one. But nonetheless, I really like the folks at Patriot Mobile. They are really good, and the quality is really good, and you can save some money. PatriotMobile.com slash Eric. It's me. It's me. Welcome. It's Eric Erickson. Uh, in the next hour, Josh Clark is going to join me in studio for the full hour. He is running for the United States Senate in Georgia. Uh, we had uh, Kelvin King on Monday. We'll have Josh today. Let me give you the lineup here so you know. Um, where are we now? So, yep, we got Josh today. Uh, by the way, Congressman Ted Budd is going to join me by phone tomorrow. He's running for the Senate in North Carolina. Uh, Ted Budd will be joining me in the uh, around 2.30 if you're listening live. Uh, on Monday, the 9th, Latham Sadler is going to join me in studio. He is um, running for the Senate. And then on Monday, the 16th, Gary Black, the Ag Commissioner in Georgia, is going to be joining me. Uh, he is um, also running for the Senate. So i uh, got all the Senate candidates. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to get Herschel Walker scheduled. He is um, – we don't have him on the books. We reached out to the campaign team. The primary, for those of you wondering, is May 24th. Early voting has begun in Georgia already, uh, and I got my absentee ballot. It is remarkable to me, just lay the landscape here, and I'm hearing this from around the state now. The Kemp campaign is doing pretty aggressive door-to-door. They have been putting door hangers on with QR codes where if you use your phone – man, the QR code has made a comeback. Um, And – they, um, you, you click on the QR code with your phone and it goes straight to your absentee ballot request. That's how I got my absentee ballot. Um, and I'm voting for Kemp, of course. So is everybody else. Uh, the, the latest poll I had, had Purdue had like 21% of the vote and Kemp about 60% of the vote. That's, that's pretty bad. But the Kemp team is doing aggressive door-to-door throughout Georgia. Uh, we had a Kemp volunteer leave a door hanger and the next week a Kemp volunteer showed up to talk to my wife. They were focused on talking to the wives. And uh, the Purdue team has not been anywhere near uh, my neighborhood uh, at all. They're not just avoiding me. They're avoiding my neighborhood. But I'm hearing this. I I mentioned it the other day on air. And I'm getting these from all over the state. People are seeing Kemp 
people show up and they're not seeing Purdue people show up. Uh, I talked to a guy last night who said the Purdue team doesn't seem to have enough staff and, and has never built up a volunteer base big enough to be able to help do that sort of stuff. So they're relying on the voice of Donald Trump to get people out. And I mean, that didn't get people to turn out in 2018 in the midterms. I don't know that that'll get people to turn out in 2022 in the midterms, particularly when Trump's not even president. And I think the Purdue team kind of realizes that. When we come back, Josh Clark.